Introducing Arshell, the Tema American Reshoring ETF, the pioneer in investing in America's infrastructure revival and beyond. Invest in the companies we've identified as leading and benefiting from this industrial resurgence today. Visit us online, temaetfs.com slash RSHO. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's investment objective, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus and summary prospectus available at temaetfs.com. Read carefully. Investing involves risk, including possible loss. Foresight Fund Services, LLC. I'm not giving up this fight when a majority of Americans disapprove of both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. South Carolina has spoken. We're the fourth state to do so. In the next 10 days, another 21 states and territories will speak. They have the right to a real choice. Not a Soviet-style election with only one candidate. That's Nikki Haley on why she's staying in the race following her primary loss to Donald Trump on Saturday in her home state of South Carolina. We'll have much, much more from that contest, as well as look ahead to tomorrow's primary in Michigan. Meanwhile, in Washington this week, President Joe Biden is set to sit down with congressional leaders on two important items, avoiding a government shutdown and pass funding for Ukraine. And also ahead, we'll bring you the latest on negotiations to free hostages still being held by Hamas a deal that could bring a ceasefire and much-needed humanitarian aid to Gaza. Good morning and welcome to Way Too Early on this Monday, February 26th. I'm Jonathan Lemire, and thanks for starting your day and week with us. And we will begin this morning with Donald Trump's victory in South Carolina's Republican presidential primary. The former president won Nikki Haley's home state on Saturday by more than 20 points, claiming 47 of the 50 delegates available. But despite her defeat, Haley is promising to stay in the race. Today in South Carolina, we're getting around 40% of the vote. That, that's, about what, that's about what we got in New Hampshire, too. I'm going to count it. I know 40% is not 50%. But I also know 40% is not some tiny group. There are huge numbers of voters in our Republican primaries who are saying they want an alternative. this week that no matter what happens in South Carolina, I would continue to run for president. I'm a woman of my word. Haley has pledged to stay in the race until Super Tuesday, at least. That's a week from tomorrow. Now, despite Trump's win on Saturday, and it was a decisive win, but some worrisome signs for his campaign. Exit polls pointing to some real trouble ahead for him in a likely general election rematch against Joe Biden. When asked by NBC News, 81% of Nikki Haley supporters said their vote was more of a vote against Trump than it was a vote for Haley. 
Haley also beat Trump with college-educated voters, 54% to 45%, college-educated voters making more and more of a more of a piece of the electorate each and every year. 36% of all voters also said they would consider Trump unfit for office if he were to be convicted of a crime ahead of Election Day. And despite Trump's continued efforts to push the big lie, 36% of Republican primary voters said that Joe Biden was legitimately elected in 2020. That's still a disturbing number that 61% do not, but again, could point to a weakness in support for Trump come November. Joining us now, politics reporter for Semaphore, Shelby Talcott. Shelby, who had been in South Carolina uh, much of last week ahead of the primary, uh, been on the ground reporting, now joins us live from Washington. So, Shelby, let's be clear. This was a, a win for Donald Trump. He won by 20% in Nikki Haley's home state. But as we just went through, there are seemingly some real warning signs for the Trump campaign going ahead. These exit polls mirror similar findings that we saw out of Iowa and New Hampshire. So talk to us about how you perceive these uh, potential warning signs and how does the Trump campaign see them? Well, listen, if you talk to the Trump campaign, they've sort of argued, hey, guys, we have won this so resoundingly, sort of, uh, why are you focusing on these kinds of numbers when there is still a primary going on? At the same time, this really encapsulates Nikki Haley's entire argument, which revolves around electability. She has spent the past several weeks and months in these early voting states arguing that she is more electable than Donald Trump. And that's what those numbers sort of suggest. But Republican voters, based on the results of Iowa, New Hampshire and South Carolina, you know, don't necessarily buy it. And as much as Nikki Haley might argue that she is the more electable person in a matchup against Joe Biden, she still has to win the Republican primary. Now, it's certainly possible, Shelby, that some of those voters you know, by November, when if they're seeing a Trump Biden race will come home to the Republican, but not all will. And in, in what is to be expected to be an extremely close uh, election, you know, the, just those along the margins could matter. And tell us uh, a little more uh, the, the Trump campaign. You know, they, they're, they're, they've vowed they're not even going to talk about Nikki Haley anymore. They're just going to focus on the general election. But Michigan's tomorrow. Haley might put up a decent showing there, too. No. Well, I've, I've spoken to aides who argue even in a best case scenario where Nikki Haley does do really well in Michigan, which they are arguing that she will not, um, of course. But even in that best case scenario, they have sort of laid out the math and said, regardless of Michigan, Donald Trump still has the clear path to the nomination, which is likely accurate. Um, at the same time, as you just said, they've really started tamping down on focusing on Nikki Haley and Donald Trump's acceptance speech. He really didn't directly mention her. Um, and that's intentional. They want to pivot to the general election now that South Carolina is over. Yeah, I mean, Trump is almost certainly going to be the nominee and have the delegates in hand before we know it. But some weaknesses in his case uh, are certainly emerging. Uh, Shelby, you also have some reporting on how the Im issue of immigration is playing into this primary race. Why don't you tell us about that? And Nikki Haley's super PAC in South Carolina has started hitting Donald Trump over immigration, over the fact that in uh, 2011 and 2013, he voted for the current or he he donated to the current vice 
president while Nikki Haley was signing tough immigration laws in her home state of South Carolina. And so I think that's notable because Donald Trump has also tried to hit Nikki Haley on the right over the issue of immigration. And it just sort of indicates to me broadly how important this issue has become, particularly for Republican voters, but really just in general in this country. We will, of course, have much, much more on the South Carolina results later in the show, as well as the future of Nikki Haley's campaign. Politics reporter for Semaphore, Shelby Talcott, thank you so much for starting us off this morning. We really appreciate it. Now, before his South Carolina primary victory, Donald Trump took the stage at the conservative CPAC conference over the weekend, which is held just outside of Washington. In front of a smaller-than-usual crowd, Trump devoted a large chunk of his rambling 90-minute speech on Saturday to defending his own cognitive ability while mixing in some ominous threats about the future of America. I stand before you today not only as your past and hopefully future president, but as a proud political dissident. I am a dissident. 2024. If we don't stop it, this is our last train. If we don't stop it, We're going to have a country. It won't even be a country. You want to know the truth? It won't even be a country. It's breaking up. In Beverly Hills, you pay a fortune in taxes. They say you can only brush your teeth once a day. You know this is all genius, okay? You do know. I hope you know. I always say my uncle was the longest-serving professor in the history of MIT, Dr. John Trump. We have a lot of great aptitude. They'll say, he rambled. Nobody can ramble like this. They call me Raisin. I said, what? They're very informative stories. They're very important stories, actually. But no, uh, there's no cognitive problem. If there was, I'd know about it. I said, uh, Mr. President, you're going to have to give us 28,000 soldiers because the caravans. That was another name I came up with. I come up with good names. A really smart person can go through various stories, always come back and conclude everything. I want to win the award as the best whatever the hell they call it, the best speaker. I won it like nine years in a row, right? They'll say, he rambled, he's cognitively impaired. No, it's really the opposite. It's total genius, you know that. He did announce the other day that he'd much rather see Biden as president. And I agree with him. I agree. Most of that didn't make sense. He was referring to Vladimir Putin there at the end. I think we can fact check that one quite a bit. Uh, Still ahead here, the latest on a potential ceasefire between Israel and Hamas and what Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is saying about a potential ground invasion in Rafah. Plus, Republicans are scrambling to respond after an Alabama court ruled embryos can be considered children under state law. We'll take a look at how some members of the party are rapidly trying to distance themselves from that decision. Those stories and a check on sports and weather when we come right back. Introducing Hearts, the Tema Cardiovascular and Metabolic ETF. Invest in companies we've identified as leading the charge against heart disease, diabetes, and obesity. Revolutionary innovations in areas such as weight loss drugs are paving the way for transformative treatments. Visit us online, temaetfs.com slash HRTS. 
Before investing, carefully consider the fund's investment objective, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus and summary prospectus available at temaetfs.com. Read carefully. Investing involves risk, including possible loss. Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash Sirius XM. Welcome back. We'll have more from the South Carolina primary in just a moment. But now we turn to some of the morning's other top headlines. The United States is hopeful that a new deal to release the remaining hostages in Gaza could be reached in the coming days. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan made that those comments yesterday, but declined to give any specific details about the potential agreement. On Friday, negotiators met in Paris to discuss a new framework that would include a temporary ceasefire. Talks had stalled after Israel called Hamas's demands delusional. Negotiations are continuing today in Qatar with a, an Israeli delegation and mediators from the United States and Egypt. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is telling CBS News that a hostage deal will not stop his plans to launch a ground invasion in Rafah, despite real humanitarian concerns. Take a listen. Once we begin the Rafah operation, the intense phase of the fighting is weeks away from completion. Not months, weeks away from completion. But understand, too, that I've asked the army to submit to me a double plan. First, to evacuate, to enable the evacuation of the Palestinian civilians in Gaza, and uh, obviously, second, to destroy the remaining Hamas battalions. That gets us a real, real distance uh, towards the completion of our our victory. And that uh, we're not going to give it up. If we have a deal, it'll be delayed somewhat, uh, but it'll happen. If we don't have a deal, we'll do it anyway. Meanwhile, back here stateside, Alabama's attorney general says he does not intend to prosecute providers of in vitro fertilization or the families who undergo those treatments. The comments came just days after the state Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos are children. That decision led to several fertility clinics suspending their IVF treatments over fears of prosecution. And much of the Republican Party is now trying to distance itself from that ruling. Senate campaign committee leaders warned that Democrats might use this for electoral gain and suggested the candidates express support for IVF. It appears that Donald Trump is also following that advice. He broke his silence on the ruling over the weekend ahead of the South Carolina primary. Take a listen. Like the overwhelming majority of Americans, including the vast majority of Republican, conservatives, Christians, and pro-life Americans, I strongly support the availability of IVF for couples who are trying to have a precious little beautiful baby. I support it. And today I'm calling on the Alabama legislature to act quickly to find an immediate solution to preserve the availability of IVF in Alabama, and I'm sure they're going to do that. The Republican Party should always be on the side of the miracle of life and the side of mothers and fathers and beautiful little babies. 
The Biden-Harris campaign criticized Trump's comments there, calling it an attempt to, quote, whitewash the reality he created, adding that Trump overturned Roe v. Wade that led to this ruling and continues to boast about that. Still ahead here, we'll turn to sports with highlights from Sunday's action in both college and pro basketball, plus the fallout from another court-storming incident. This one turned ugly. We'll have all that and a check on the forecast to start the work week as we take a look at pre-dawn New York City. We'll be right back. Introducing our show, the Tema American Reshoring ETF, the pioneer in investing in America's infrastructure revival and beyond. Invest in the companies we've identified as leading and benefiting from this industrial resurgence today. Visit us online, temaetfs.com slash RSHO. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's investment objective, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus and summary prospectus available at temaetfs.com. Read carefully. Investing involves risk, including possible loss. Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash Sirius XM. Having a hard time getting it to anybody. Got it to Thornton. Bruce Thornton ahead. Potter at the buzzer. Got it! Oh! That is a tough shot. But Ohio State's Dale Bonner hit a contested fadeaway three-pointer at the buzzer to lift the Buckeyes over Coach Tom Izzo and Michigan State, 60-57 in East Lansing last night. To New York City now, one week after a public verbal lashing from St. John's coach Rick Pitino, the Red Storm finally closed out a quality conference opponent last night, beating number 15 Creighton 80-66. to in the team's best win yet under the Hall of Fame coach. St. John's has now won two straight after dropping eight of ten. But whether a strong regular season finish could still be enough to earn an at-large NCAA tournament bid remains to be seen. Patino, of course, went after his team, later apologized. Also in college basketball, there are new calls this morning to bring an end to the tradition of court storming following an incident at the end of Wake Forest's upset win over 8th-ranked Duke on Saturday night. Blue Devil star Kyle Filipowski was left hobbled after a collision with a fan when the Demon Deacons crowd poured onto the home court as the clock hit zero. Filipowski appeared to bang his right leg into the leg of a fan running by him, and he needed to be helped into the locker room amid the chaos. The incident comes a little over a month after Iowa women's superstar Caitlin Clark collided on the court with a fan during an Ohio State victory celebration. Absolutely, these, these court stormings are way too common. They've lost any sort of novelty. They're not special anymore, and frankly, they're dangerous. NCAA should crack down. We turn now to the NBA to San Francisco, where the Nuggets, Nikola Jokic, racked up a game-high 32 points, 16 rebounds, and 16 assists. That's his third straight triple-double and 18th of the season as he led Denver past the Golden State Warriors 119-103 to last night. 
the Nuggets. Now off to a 3-0 start after the All-Star break following a three-game skid right before it. Celtics beat the Knicks over the weekend. They also remain hot. Meanwhile, Miami Heat's Heat star Jimmy Butler is among five players suspended without pay for their roles in a scuffle during Friday night's game against the New Orleans Pelicans. The NBA announced yesterday that Butler and Pelicans forward Najee Marshall were each suspended one game for instigating and engaging in an on-court altercation. Pelicans guard Jose Alvarado and Heat center Thomas Bryant were each suspended three games for leaving the bench during the incident and then fighting. And Heat forward Nikola Jovic was also suspended one game for stepping off the bench. Time now for the weather. And let's go to meteorologist Michelle Grossman for the forecast as we begin yet another work week. Michelle, how's it looking out there? Yeah, they just keep coming, right? Well, we're looking at a really nice day in portions of the Central Plains and the East because we're going to see temperatures feeling very spring-like, a battle of the season. Spring-like in the Central Plains and even summer-like in the Southern Plains. We're going to see temperatures into the 90s. Meanwhile, we're looking at west where it's going to be really wintry with heavy snow, feet of snow in some spots and really windy conditions. So that's what it looks like today. Could see a couple snow showers in portions of the upper Midwest. But take a look at some of these numbers because we are going to be into the 90s in Dallas, 93 degrees. That is a forecasted high in February. The record there is 90 degrees. Warm in Chicago, 69, right around the 70-degree mark. Near 80 degrees in Kansas City. Fort Smith, 84. And we're looking at Paducah, 78 degrees. That warmth stays in place tomorrow, too. So we could break hundreds of records over the next several days in 25 states. Meanwhile, we're looking at temperatures really cold out west. We're going to see temperatures uh, below the freezing mark. That's going to set the stage for some snow. Again, we will be measuring that snow and feed. And we could see winds gusting up to 60, even 75 miles per hour. This storm system will move to the east and then we're going to see the threat for severe weather in portions of the Midwest tomorrow, the Ohio Valley, the Great Lakes. And we could see some tornadoes and really large hail with any of these storms. Jonathan. Michelle Grossman, thank you as always. Still ahead here on Way Too Early, we're going to dig into some new reporting about how the CIA is secretly helping Ukraine counter Russia. And that help didn't just start when Moscow's full-scale invasion began two years ago. Way too early. We'll be right back with that. Welcome back to Way Too Early. It's just before 5.30 a.m. here on the East Coast, 2.30 out west on this Monday morning. I'm Jonathan Lemire, and thanks for being with us. In a show of support for Ukraine, five Democratic senators traveled to the nation's western city of Lviv on Friday with aid for the country held up in the lower chamber. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the main goal of the trip was designed to help those in the House make up their minds. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky posted this video of their meeting on Friday, thanking the senators for their visit, saying that Americans are on the side of truth and that the two nations share common values. This past Saturday, of course, was the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion. And over the weekend, the New York Times reported on the intensive coordination between the CIA and the intelligence division in Ukraine's military. Citing a senior Ukrainian official, the Times reports the CIA has helped disrupt at least one assassination plot against President Zelensky. But it also details, the piece also details how the CIA 
has helped dating back to the first weeks of the war. It's really good reporting here. I recommend checking it out. In March of 2022, the CIA tipped off Ukraine on plans Russia had made to open a humanitarian corridor out of the now-destroyed city of Mariupol, with plans to then open fire on any Ukrainian using that path. That same month, the CIA warned Ukraine of Russian plans to launch missiles at various cities. Apparently, the CIA's information was so precise, it already knew that Russia had plugged in the coordinates to the cruise missiles that were going to be used. With the future of continued U.S. aid to Ukraine now unclear, the Times reporting that some Ukrainian intel officers are now asking their American counterparts whether the CIA will abandon them. And we should note, this help began long before the 2022 invasion, dating back to Russia's first incursion back in 2014 into Crimea. Joining us now, retired CIA officer Mark Palmaropoulos. He is an NBC News security and intelligence analyst. Mark, I have a feeling you know a little bit about uh, this uh, effort there in Ukraine. Um, tell us what you can and your impressions from that pretty blockbuster reporting over the weekend and what it says about this U.S.-Ukraine alliance. So I think the, the reporting really does give the American people an insight into what, you know, what the CIA accomplishes overseas. And, and if you take a look in, in Ukraine, look, this all started in 2014. And so, you know, I call it putting in the plumbing. And that's when the U.S. intelligence community will go into, into a country, you know, at, at the country's request and do things such as establish personal relationships, start training programs. So that when a policy decision is made, in this case, after the invasion of Ukraine, you know, we can turn the spigot on and provide, for example, lethal targeting assistance. But I think it, it really goes to show that the CIA, you know, is, does never come home. We are always deployed. And again, it's those personal relationships. Jonathan, uh, I'll tell you, right after the invasion, I asked a friend of mine in national security circles, I said, who really is the nerve center right now? Uh, who's the combatant command? That's the, you know, the euphemism for the which which U.S. military unit is is in charge. And he said, well, nothing right now except Langley, meaning my old colleagues at CIA. So a lot to be proud of. Final point, Bill Burns made a secret trip, not so secret anymore, uh, per the reporting to Ukraine recently to reassure uh, Ukrainian intelligence that the CIA, regardless of the kind of the political dysfunction in Washington, the CIA will not abandon Ukraine. Yeah, the story details some ups and downs in the relationship between Kiev and Washington over the years. Uh, but certainly the CIA is there now and helping in any way it can. Again, we recommend the piece. So, Mark, let's just turn to the, the state of play in the combat, as it's been well documented that Ukraine is desperate in need of this U.S. aid that is still holed up. What are you seeing on the battlefield right now? And if this U.S. aid is either significantly delayed or does not come at all, what do you think happens in the war? Well, you know, in, in talking to some journalists who are actually on the front lines, you know, they paint a very dire picture. These are uh, individuals who are, in essence, embedded with Ukrainian units. And they're saying that the, 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 the shortage of ammunition and artillery is so acute that, look, there's, there's going to be hundreds, if not thousands, of Ukrainians who needlessly die. Uh, they're going to lose territory to Russia. And so it really is a race against time. And, and you know, when, when you think about the, the, what everything is really focused on events in Washington, I guess Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, is having a meeting with the president today. Um, but we've got to really get this settled, because if not, uh, and it's almost preordained, at least in the short term, Ukrainians are going to suffer some losses. It's, it's sad. It damages American credibility. But in, in essence, it's going to hurt the Ukrainians pretty badly. We've got to get our own political house in order. And lastly, and briefly, Mark, what's your sense of the Russian capabilities right now? That if, if Ukraine continues to run out of ammo, how much of an advance can the Russians make? Or is it more about consolidating the gains they already have? 
Yeah, Jonathan, that's a great question because, you know, you don't, we don't want to be kind of too hyperbolic here. I mean, you know, Russia's not going to sweep across uh, uh, moving west. I think they're going to make some territorial gains, but Russia has its own problems. Remember, Ukraine has attrited, you know, 50 percent of the Russian military, three to four hundred thousand uh, Russian killed and wounded, 6,000 main battle tanks destroyed, 20 percent of the Black Sea fleet. So Ukraine will continue to try to hold the line. Um, Russia is not going to sweep across uh, uh, Ukraine at this point, but they're going to make gains. And so really, it's a it's a battle of defense now for the Ukrainians. Terrific insight, as always, from retired CIA officer Mark Palmeropoulos. Mark, thank you. Still ahead, we'll turn to CNBC for a look at this morning's business headlines and bring you some insight on the markets, which appear to be moving lower ahead of the opening bell. We'll be right back with that. Time now for business. And for that, let's bring in CNBC's Arabile Gomede, who joins us live from London. We should note, Arabile and I made a surprise cameo in the F newest episode of the F1 documentary series that a lot of folks saw this weekend. But Arabile, we'll set that aside and note that investors are looking forward to key inflation data and investor earnings today. How's Wall Street shaping up in the morning's early hours? Yeah, so we're swiftly moving along then from the F1, as you made note of there. But look, the market has actually got a little bit of weakness in it. And this follows on from what was a bumper week, actually, last week, right? All of the three major indices had really moved significantly higher. Even the Nasdaq finding a 52-week high, in fact, in some of its trade uh, last week. The S&P 500 even notching out 5,100 at some stage, uh, but only managing to eke out a gain of 0.3% on Friday. But across the entire week, then, you saw big gains. NVIDIA being the key proponent to that jump, climbing nearly 10% on the week. So it's really about where to from here when it comes to that. Will that bull run continue to move a little bit higher? The S&P 500 is more than 7% to the good year to date, in fact. Again, the tech players being uh, key to that uptick. This week, though, we do have some economic data, and it's the Federal Reserve's most important, the, the inflation uh, point and print that they deem to be one that is very important. It's the personal consumption expenditure data. That happens later on this week. So we'll look out for that number. It's expected to rise 0.4% month on month. All right, let's hit two others quickly here. Berkshire, Berkshire Hathaway posted a big rise in operating earnings in the fourth quarter. What drove that surge? Yeah, so the surge actually comes from the fact that they've actually decided to sell off a few of the shares, in fact, in the, in the company. I mean, they were net sellers of a lot of equity uh, across the board. So Warren Buffett's company deciding instead to actually sell a few more stock. Interestingly enough, and this was very interesting to note, that he says that he doesn't see a compelling case for new purchases or new deals, particularly outside of the United States. Nothing seems to be game-changing. This is all in a world that we've seen, where we've seen AI become a dominant player and still deciding to sit on a cash pile. He's sitting with cash worth 167.6 billion U.S. dollars. So a heavy cash pile there. And lastly, some major U.S. airlines have raised their checked bag fees in the last couple months, just since the, the start of the year. Tell us the latest on that, and is there any way that we, the flying public, can avoid them? Yeah, so, I mean, you're going to have to find a way to do so. And the best way to try and avoid them is only to really have them a little bit cheaper. So if you actually are able to make a purchase of that baggage fee uh, just 
24 hours before your flight or at least online at the very least, then you will at least be able to pay a little bit less. Now, United Airlines are the latest to have increased their baggage fees, right? They check luggage fees, then um, all the others have been able to do so. United Airlines now raising the check baggage fee by $5. So the, uh, for your first check-in baggage, you'll pay $40, then 35 if you pay online or at least 24 hours uh, before your flight. That's an increase of $5, as I said. Then The second luggage bag, $50, that is. So, yeah, the numbers are getting a little bit stark. As I said, then you had JetBlue and American Airlines, as well as Alaska Airlines, having all raised their baggage fees as well of late. All right. CNBC's Arabi Legamere, live from London as always. Thank you, sir. Still ahead, a well, back to politics and a big blow for Nikki Haley's presidential campaign. Now moving forward without the support of one of its biggest donors after she lost South Carolina's primary over the weekend. We'll dig into how that may impact her bid for the Republican nomination, the future of her campaign. We'll be right back. Welcome back. And we've got a bit of breaking news this morning. Just learned RNC chairwoman Ronna McDaniel will be resigning her post next month, March 8th. McDaniel has led the committee since 2017, having recently been reelected to the post just last year. The RNC has not yet announced an interim chair, but former President Trump has publicly backed the chairman of North Carolina's Republican Party, a man named Michael Watley, to replace McDaniel. In a statement, McDaniel says this, the RNC has historically undergone change once we have a nominee, and it has always been my intention to honor that tradition. I remain committed to winning back the White House and electing Republicans up and down the ballot in November. Elsewhere in the Republican politics, and a big financial blow to Nikki Haley's bid for the GOP nomination, conservative billionaire Charles Koch and the super PAC Americans for Prosperity Action are now suspending funding to the former South Carolina governor's campaign following her 20-point loss to Donald Trump in her home state over the weekend. Although Americans for Prosperity Action has poured $31 million into Haley's campaign's coffers, the PAC CEO said in an email to staffers that the Kochback group no longer believed it could make a material difference to widen Haley's path to victory. Joining us now, communication strategist and former aide to House Speakers Ryan and Boehner, Brendan Buck. He is an MSNBC political analyst. Uh, Brendan, let's just start with this breaking news about Ronna McDaniel. Um, it seemed like her fate was sealed as soon as Trump a few weeks ago said that he wanted leadership change ahead of the RNC, including putting his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, into a prominent position. Uh, tell us about what you think McDaniel's legacy is, but also what this change will mean for the RNC going forward. Yeah, in her statement, she's not wrong that it's it's somewhat normal for a, a new uh, nominee to come in and, and put their people in place. I think the, what's interesting here is she was his person to begin with. And um, this is clearly the, the president trying to stack the RNC. But I think it just shows you that she was hardly the person who was really uh, you know, anti-Trump to begin with or standing up to him to begin with. Um, but we should imagine that if Donald Trump becomes president again, the entire Republican ecosystem is going to be built up in him, his image. And that's that's what's what's happening here. Obviously, he's talked about his his daughter in law. Um, so it, it, it's an RNC thing. But I think it, it's something that we should think about extending far beyond that into the administration, into Congress. This is going to be the most Trumpy Republican Party you've ever seen. And of course, the RNC needs to be a big part of that. Um, you know, she is 
had some some ups and downs. I think she always struggled uh, figuring out whether or not she was a natural Trump person in this role. Um, but I think she's probably more than anything quite glad to, to have this part of her her life behind her. I think that's a, a safe bet. Questions will persist, though, as to how much money raised by the RNC will go to Republicans or Trump legal bills. We'll watch that in the months ahead. So let, let's turn now to the ongoing GOP race. As we've noted earlier, Donald Trump won uh, South Carolina 20 points. Let's start with the, how this impacts Nikki Haley. Koch brothers announced that the, that's not going to they're not going to fund her anymore. She's vowing to stay in through Super Tuesday, which is, you know, 10 days or so away. Uh, what do you think? Will that be the end of the run for Nikki Haley or does she try to forge past that to stay in the race just in case? You know, I'm, I'm somewhat surprised that she, she's still in it. And I think at this point, you, you really just have to take her at her word that she simply just believes people deserve a choice when they're when they're voting these days. Now, losing this money, you could argue, is, is devastating for her. But on the other hand, if you look at her for what her what her, she really is at this point, I don't know that it makes much of a difference. I, I think at this point, she is really just a protest candidate. Uh, and I don't say that derisively. I, I just think that that's what she believes is needed right now. She thinks that she's doing what is uh, right in her heart, that that people should not just give this man the nomination. Uh, I don't think it, I think she knows she's not going to win. I think Donald Trump knows she's not going to win. Um, and I, I, candidly, I mean, I, I'm somewhat impressed. Running for president is hard. Running for president when you know you have no chance to win is really hard. Uh, and getting up every day and asking people mm-hmm. to do that uh, is, is a tough slog. But I think she clearly just believes that uh, that's what voters deserve. And Brendan, we opened the show noting Trump's victory carried a lot of warning signs in South Carolina. Forty percent of the vote went to Haley. A significant percentage of those voters said they'll never vote for Trump. Give us your quick impressions. How concerned should Trump be, even though he's going to be the nominee? How concerned should Trump be about some of these findings in these early states? Uh, quite, quite concerned. Um, now, I will say we have seen poll after poll show that the vast majority of people who are choosing Nikki Haley in the primary will still vote for Donald Trump. So it's not as though none of those 40 people, 40% of people uh, will be able to get his vote. And I think it kind of just shows that he, the party is actually a little more united than we think. However, if it's only 15%, 10%, Maybe 20 percent of those of those voters are not going to vote for the Republican nominee. That could be a huge problem with with the margins that we are expecting. Um, that's why I think Donald Trump needs to be relatively careful not to go too hard after Nikki Haley. One, I think it's smart. Just ignore her and move on. But he does need those voters at some point. Um, and if he makes himself so toxic uh, in their mind that he can't come around, then then Trump, uh, then then Biden will actually uh, Biden will clearly uh, be the benefit beneficiary of that uh, dynamic. Yeah, even a small percentage of Republicans who opt not to vote for Trump will be meaningful in a race that's expected to be so close this November. We really appreciate the insight from MSNBC political analyst Brendan Buck. Thank you, Brendan. We'll talk to you again soon. Up next here on Way Too Early, lawmakers on Capitol Hill are, are running out of time to strike a deal to avert a partial government shutdown. We'll go over what Republicans are now demanding ahead of Friday's deadline. And then coming up on Morning Joe, after a disappointing loss in her home state of South Carolina, Nikki Haley's off to Michigan. Why she says she's still staying in the race, even though the end of her campaign may be rapidly approaching. Plus, a breakdown of Donald Trump's rambling, gaff-filled CPAC speech, where he called himself a political dissident and gave a bizarre explanation for why he thinks he now appeals to black voters. 
Also ahead, award-winning actor Martin Sheen will be a guest this morning. You will want to see that. Morning Joe, just a few moments away. Introducing Hearts, the Tema Cardiovascular and Metabolic ETF. Invest in companies we've identified as leading the charge against heart disease, diabetes, and obesity. Revolutionary innovations in areas such as weight loss drugs are paving the way for transformative treatments. Visit us online, temaetfs.com slash HRTS. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's investment objective, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus and summary prospectus available at temaetfs.com. Read carefully. Investing involves risk, including possible loss. Foresight Fund Services, LLC.